0: I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here or what I'm doing here or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This week, we are on episode 75 on Roger Zelazny's Sign of the Unicorn. And with us today is that double-crossing immortal hoy.
0: Not to mention pedantic double-crossing <laughs> immortal
1: <laughs> And our special guest today is the co-founder of Black Armada, the author of Bite Marks, the co-author of Lovecraft Esque, and a contributor to Quietus, Hideous Creatures, Seven Wonders, and others as well. Welcome to the show, Becky Anison. Hello. Thanks ever so
0: much for having me on, guys. Hello, Becky. So glad to meet you
1: yeah and uh Jammy, who we had on two episodes ago is very jealous that you get to do this episode when when we announced what our next two episodes were she's like son of the unicorn i want to be on that one <laughs> 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 they will prize it from my cold dead hands <laughs> so becky uh can you tell us your uh your origin story how you got into gaming Oh, I have mentioned this before. So if anybody listening has already heard
2: it, I apologize. But I think I was about 10. And in my school library, there was a book. And on reflection, I'm pretty sure it was a novel. And on reflection, I'm pretty sure that this was supposed to be a morality tale about satanic panic. Because it was set. it was a it was a bunch of um, school kids, and the the concept of the book was a, a role playing game that had got out of hand and and caused this friendship group to fracture, and and people lost their sanity and things like that. And but I thought gosh, that sounds like a brilliant hobby. I wish I could that.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> And then I remember reading that book and then my, when my, my 11th birthday rolled round, I saved up all my money to buy, mm-hmm. not the red box set, because I think I'm a bit, maybe a bit young for that. I'm not sure. Um, but it was a black box with a red dragon on the front.
1: Mm.
0: Okay. All right. I think that was around the same time as Rule Encyclopedia, or just bef- between the Rule Cyclopedia and the Red Box. I think there was that like, right. the of Oh, I was, okay. Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there.
1: And did you ha- Did you find people to play with? Were you gathering your friends together and saying, "Let's try this thing"? How did that work? so from the age of about 11 i think to 17 i pestered a lot of
2: people i did find some people to game with in a smaller way but from when i was 17 i met some people at school and it sort of rocketed off at that point and we gamed every weekend all all the time during the summer holidays um, and that sort of thing and, and that was kind of when it really took off for me and that was also a point in my life when i got introduced to amber
1: so oh very cool Now, had you heard the term Appendix N before we invited you to be on the show? Is this a term you were familiar with? Yes, it's a term I'm familiar with. Perfect. And (laughs) what was your experience with the Appendix N?
2: Uh, I think when I was younger, it was a list of a lot of books that I had already read and a list (laughs) of a lot of books I might like to read. Now I'm a bit older uh, Looking at the original Appendix N, there's obviously not so many women authors, not so many authors of colour on there. Um, And so I think now with my older eyes, I would like to rewrite it. I Mm -hmm. presume it is being rewritten for later editions um, to kind of include some of the authors that I have now understood and uncovered that I wasn't
1: exposed to back then. People like Octavia Butler, who blow my mind. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, because on the list, there are are no people of color, and there there are only three women. It's Andre Norton, Lee Brackett and um, oh, Margaret St. Clair. Yeah. Um, other than Octavia Butler, if you could go back and and tweak this list, who else would you want to include in a list like this? Uh, well, I think that,
2: I mean, I was going to mention them in a the later section, but I think for world building and succinct world building, I think Ursula Le Guin and Samuel Delaney are real mm. standouts right, right. Yeah. for
0: me. And they would be also, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, chronologically correct for an appendix A exactly. of 1978. Right. right. That's mm-hmm. what I was
2: trying to pick some people who who yeah. would uh, fit in for the time. I mean, think right, if it right. was a modern day thing, it would be a very different right. list.
0: Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> right. Are there any uh, known? I mean, Samuel Delaney is. but Are there any known queer writers on the appendix end that we know of? Uh, I don't know. You know, obviously, people were a little bit more low profile in terms of their, you know, social and and uh, you know, gender identity and all that in the day. But I'm just wondering, when you, um, not that I'm aware, I think, of. I think he's the first major know. major queer science fiction writer that i'm aware of yeah
1: me too Mm -hmm. oh samuel delaney is yeah Mm yeah oh i didn't know that yeah very cool all right so let's go ahead and chat about which edition of the book we are working with uh becky tell us about how you read sign of the unicorn so i didn't read it i listened
2: to it on audiobook Perfect. I've, uh, i've read it many many times over the course of my life i've read the the full, the full big fat version where it combines them all together. And for various different reasons, I thought, you know, it's going to be a lot easier if I do this via audio book at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I did, which I've not done before, which is very exciting.
1: Now, I know that uh, the earlier recording of the book was read by Roger Zelazny, and then the one that's available currently on Audible is read by somebody else. Which one did you listen to?
2: I listened to the one by somebody else, and I'm okay. ashamed to say that i know which actor i know who the actor played on battlestar galactica but i can't remember his real name and i'm so sorry
1: (laughs) i listened to some of roger zelazny's audiobook and what was interesting to me is that he pronounced ganelon gainelon
2: okay i did not know that that's very interesting i've been saying that wrong (laughs)
0: That was his little Easter egg. He was just trying to trick everybody. <laughs> 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 so, He's he he an unreliable ebook narrator, audiobook narrator. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hoy, which edition are you working with? I am reading the Avon uh, paperback. This is the seventh printing of the, but the same cover as the first printing. And so uh, somewhere in, probably in the early 80s. And it's got the Ron Walopsky cover.
1: Perfect. I've got the sixth printing, so right. I'm one printing ahead of yours. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, also, the 1976 Avon paperback, um, and yeah, we've got this unicorn, and we've got a dude in armor pointing a like a, a high tech gun.
0: Yep. Yep, and the triggers the the triggers on the Trump top. His thumb, his thumb is using is the the trigger here, and yep. And it's kind of funny because. Like, I don't know, maybe at that point, Zelazny was such a big name that his name was more important than, like, the cover art. it's all typography. Like, the cover art is pretty cool, but it's very small. Right? It was kind of unusual in my mind. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And one thing that's really kind of cool about that whole series of Amber Books in general, though, is, like, it's it's almost less about the art and more about, like, the design and layout of the covers, which Mm -hmm. is, I feel like, not something we saw a lot of in that era. Mm Mm-hmm. It was always like, here's the art, and then we're putting Robert E. Howard's name on it, even though he didn't write it. It just (laughs) says in the style of. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. All right. So now we can go ahead and take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day.
0: Demiurge.
1: Demiurge. And Demiurge means a being responsible for the creation of the universe. And this, I actually, normally I take my Hygaxian word of the day from within the actual text itself, Uh, but this was in the, Hoy, what do you call this again?
0: Um, I guess the dedication, right?
1: The dedication, yes. So his dedication for Sign of the Unicorn says, for Jadwin and his demiurge not to forget Kickaha. So... We, here we've got his dedication is to Philip Jose Farmer and his creation, uh, Makers of the Universe, Jadwin and Kikahar from that series. Uh, and that was, you know, Robert Zelazny has frequently said that was his big inspiration in writing the Amber series. And since we also just read um, the, the the fourth in the
0: I Maker of the fourth, Universes. Yeah. I think Lavalite yeah. World. Yeah. Oh, not Lava Light, um, Behind the Walls of Terror.
1: Yes, yes. We'll yeah. be doing Lavalite World after that. Nah. Um, I couldn't help but go there with it. (gasps) All right, so now we can head on into the library and start chatting about Roger Zelazny's Sign of the Unicorn. Becky, what did you think? Oh,
2: I love Sign of the Unicorn.
1: I love it so much. It
2: comes right in the middle. And what's so good about it is you've had this build up, this mystery about what happened to Corwin. He, you know, first book, he ends up losing his um, memory and he's trying to uncover who was responsible and what's been going on the whole time. And a lot of that gets cracked wide open in Sign of the Unicorn, which makes it a very satisfying um, middle of the series book. I mm-hmm. think the other reason I really like it um, is. It's it's sort of like a light touched locked room locked room mystery if you mm-hmm. know what I mean that you because we have had this mystery that's going on it starts with the murder of Cain which actually doesn't really get referred to much again during the rest of the book we don't find out we don't find out what happened to Cain although we know what happened to Cain because we've read ahead um, and so it it kind of neatly fuses a very light touch murder mystery style investigation, talking about what's happened and introduces, properly introduces all of the rest of the cast of Amberites to us, and then goes through where they stand in the succession, alludes to where they stand politically, and then fuses that with sort of more of an adventure type novel. And I think it's a very clever thing that he does there. right?
0: Mm -hmm. And it's it's funny because the scale initially, as you say, it's a locked room. I mean, literally, I think two thirds of the book is them in the sort of the salon of the Castle Amber. But then it just opens out and becomes completely cosmic in the last three chapters, right? Yeah, Which is r- very strange. Um, and it's this weird little pause after the high action of the previous book, uh, and then I haven't yeah. read ahead to the fourth book yet. Um, but I'm sure it's going to just blow again, you know, the scope of the story even, you know, even bigger. So. So I, I shouldn't spoil it you for what happens now. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. We're all... We're <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> yes. So so basically where Hoy and I are at with that is Hoy has read the whole series at one point in time, but yep. that was a long time ago, and oh. he's now working through them. I never have. This is my first time going through the series. Now, I do know a little bit of a spoiler. I know that Cor... And, and we're fine with spoilers on the show. Uh, but I do know for a fact that Corwin is an unreliable narrator, yeah, but I don't know why or how. So it's like when somebody tells you that a movie has a twist ending before you see it, and then like the whole movie, you're waiting for the twist ending. So I'm like, what's going on? Is Corwin actually their dad? Is Corwin somehow involved with like the dad's, like, like, d- 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 is Corwin's memories gone because they've been replaced with something else to cover up what he was really doing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the answer to that yet, but I've, I've been really enjoying like finding the little uh, hints towards that. Because even throughout this book, like they pepper things in there like, you know, even Amber, even even Amberites can't trust themselves. Yeah, we can't even trust our own memories. Right, right. So Zelazny is like putting it all in there.
0: Right. A couple of times, they even say like, "Is this really the Amberite, or is this a shadow that's almost identical to the actual one?" <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I just, I think you're right. I think that's one of the reasons why these books are so rich and so interesting, both as a reader and as gamer, because they set up so many questions, and then because of the world building that he's done, the answer to those questions. Uh, Well, there could be hundreds of different answers to those questions. He's almost built a universe, a perfect universe for constant kind of um, escape moves or twists and turns, as you say. It reminds me, and I appreciate this is a bit of a stretch, but it reminds me of something like Leverage, like a heist movie where Mm -hmm. you think one set of circumstances is the situation all along. But because of the universe he's built and all the little tricks and traps he's put in, he can... Pivot it at any moment as you would do in a heist movie to completely change everything. And that's one of the things I love about Zelazny.
0: Right. And I think he must be quite versatile because you've talked about it's a locked room mystery. Now we're talking about heist. And I think there's also an element of film noir. Um, yeah, sort of the forward. Sort Definitely. of the sort of uh, compromised protagonist, the morally compromised protagonist, because we know that whatever else has gone on, anyone who lives thousands of years long has got to have done something completely shady at some point in their life. <laughs> Right,
1: and
2: I think they're uh, very clear that Cor- Corwin is a is a deeply shady individual who right. is more palatable to the reader because he spent these years on Earth and it's sort of changed his morality and his personality. So, but I, I kind of always wonder. I think that if the reader had met the pre Earth
0: Corwin, probably right. all of us would have hated him. Right, right, and even the the brothers and sisters are in, sort of in fear of him, in fear of his deviousness, mm-hmm. Right, so. And although it's
1: not a first person narrative, we're still very close to Corwin's perspective throughout the entire thing, too. So also, I'd be curious, like, what if we were viewing this from, like, Llewellyn's perspective? (laughs) What would Corwin look look like to us then?
2: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Or random or one of the others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What sort of monster did he used to be?
1: So, speaking of all of these other characters, Becky, is there a character in this in this book that was a favorite of yours or a particular highlight?
2: My my favorite character has always been Fiona.
1: Yeah, yeah. always. <laughs> right.
2: uh, ever since I was seventeen, Fiona has been the character I've loved the most and I've identified with the most. And I feel that she is what um, Hermione Granger might have become if she had had some pretty awful parents. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, Fiona is clearly a the sort of the the film noir female, um, uh, protagonist is not quite the right word because usually in the noirs it's, it's a male protagonist, but the, the 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 woman, the dark woman, right? And she has the best, I think the single best line in the book, which is on page 115. She says, never tell a woman she has changed Corwin, except for the better. <laughs> yeah she's great
2: Uh, there was uh, as i was listening to the audiobook there's another quote that she says um which is the one that sticks with me which is "Um, as for me i'm innocent of everything except malice
1: yeah
2: and (laughs) when i heard it it'd been it'd been a long time since i'd read the book and when i heard it i actually had to google to see if it wasn't a shakespeare quote or something because it felt so familiar to me
1: God, but it isn't
2: line. <laughs> it isn't a Shakespeare quote. It's it's Pierre Zelazny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now Hoy, did you have a particularly favorite character?
0: Um I think Gerard, um, but I've always liked Benedict too. Um, but I think they're both sort of like in the opposite end of the spectrum. Gerard is is uh, at least so far in the series, the most sort of open character, right? He's he's not stupid. Um he's clearly not um but he i think deliberately chooses not to participate in the deviousness that his brothers and sisters do um and then benedict i think and now it becomes clear in this book why benedict although he is potentially i mean everyone talks about he's the best tactician strategist in the entire group why he sort of held himself out of the game and that's because he's really just is not in a position to inherit the throne of amber is what we find out and that the only way for him to actually do it is to play a completely long game by potentially just extracting himself from the game until all the other parties destroy themselves, you know? so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I like both of those characters. But Fiona, I think, is a terrific character, too. There's no doubt, so...
1: Yeah. Fiona and Gerard are great. I also get a big kick out of Random and his yeah. jazz <laughs> cigarettes. Um, but for me, my favorite character only appears for a very, very, very small moment in time. But it's 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 great though because it's almost like me saying that my favorite character in this book is Roger Zelazny, because this moment is very like our uh, uh, authorial's uh, the, the, uh, the authorial voice comes through. But it's when he's on Earth and the um, he's talking to the doctor, and the doctor says to him, I have a peculiar feeling that I may never see you again. It is, as <laughs> if, it is as if I were one of those minor characters in a melodrama who gets shuffled <laughs> off stage without ever learning how things turn out. <laughs> right. That cracks me up, and it is so Zelazny speaking. And when I mentioned that in our uh, patron book club prior to this, Hoy also uh, went into the, the next paragraph, which is great. So
0: yeah. Hoy, do you want to do that? Sure. So Corwin responds, I can appreciate the feeling, I said. My own roles sometimes make me want to strangle the author. But look at this. <laughs> look at it this way. Inside stories <laughs> seldom live up to one's expectations. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and normally, I'm not a huge fan of when the author interjects him or herself too much into the story, and it, it can feel a little too like winky winky. But the way Zelazny does it works really well. I
2: think that he's a bit of a master at this, not just in the Amber novels, but I don't know if you've read any of his other books, but particularly um, a Night in the Lonesome October. Mm. Um, which is his sort of homage to Lovecraft.
0: Right. And all the horror characters. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's incredibly cleverly written. And if you haven't read it, it's absolutely worth a go. But I think that he has a a quirkiness to him and a confidence which enables him to do this very, um, very
0: well. Right, right. And you find out who the protagonist there is. Again, I think you're right about this whole unreliable, I think all of his protagonists are unreliable. Mm. Jack of Shadows is. And Dean. Oh, let us just say that the, uh, Night in Lone's of River, the narrator is another Jack. <laughs> 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 um, and that's a terrific. Book. And it's got the um, Gahan, Gahan Wilson illustrations in there, too. Yeah, and, it, yeah, it's, yeah terrific. it's great. Yeah, hmm.
1: yeah. I've only read Jack of Shadows and these three Amber novels so far.
0: And I'm a huge fan of
1: Zelazny just based on these alone.
0: Um, and I think the you're talking about the authorial Arthur, uh, intrusion. And I think it's appropriate in this case because everything is a reflection of this amber. So everything's a meta, right? So it allows Mm. you to do a little bit more meta without being too twee or cutesy, um, in another way. So, um, Mm.
1: so Becky, a lot of the times when we're doing these projects, as we're doing this project, a lot of the books we're reading, they're, they're more than 50 years old. Most of the time, they're almost all written by straight white dudes. And like oftentimes reading them from a contemporary perspective, there's a lot of stuff that's like a little like, Oh, really? Um, in your opinion, as, you, as you're going back and looking at *Sign of the Unicorn*, did you encounter much or any of that? I think I
2: think there were two things, uh, and the first is kind of obvious and kind of uh, irritating. Is a product of its time, but the women don't really get much of a shout out in mm. this. Um, you know, the idea of any LGBTQ content is really non-existent at all, Um, but the the female characters we do have, even Fiona, who is sort of the architect of what's been going on behind the scenes, gets very little airtime. Um, And the other women are, are totally throwaway, really, in my opinion. But I think that, actually, what I really noticed, particularly this time, um, is how colonial it is. So, mm. you have this elite prestige family with special powers who walk out into hundreds of other worlds and change them with a thought and treat them like playthings. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they become gods, but they absolutely treat people as shadow like disposable nothings. Um, and I think, kind of. Previously, you you are kind of sort of because you're sitting there with Corwin and you seeing through his eyes and the eyes of the family. You're like, well, these people aren't really real, are they? But the the point is, aren't are they really real? You know, that's a very convenient way to dehumanize people, um, and that sort of kind of like a real underlying metaphysic. Right. Uh, it, you know, I still enjoy Amber despite that, but now I, I can't not see that.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think they specifically call it out in this series, talking about how solipsistic the the yeah. Amberites are, and whether everything is just a subcreation of their sort of flawed egos until they actually encounter a hard reality that they have yeah. no influence over, which is sort of the barrier between, I guess, chaos and what the reflections of Amber, somewhere in the middle, you know, the limits of their power are encountered. Yeah. Um, but, you know, certainly within just the limitations and the language that was available up through 1975 and maybe not a lot of the sort of more postmodern thinking that we have now that can influence that that discussion. So...
1: Yeah, and I'll be curious to see if Dara becomes a character who is fleshed out more in future novels because I'm I'm intrigued by who this person might be.
0: Mm. Right, because she's one of the few female characters who is, at least so far, has full agency. Yeah, right, absolutely. She's
2: she is one of the ones who's given far more time and attention than than even family members so, mm-hmm. or other family members. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. It's it one of the things I do like about it, and I think it's important to bear in mind is that. I've always conceptualised Amborites as basically like Greek gods. Mm-hmm. And when you read Greek mythology, the Greek gods are not kind of kind, heroic people. They mm-hmm. are massive egos and you know, humanity is sort of very much kind of ca- damaged and caught up in the wake of their petty wars and jealousies and things like that. And although, because we're going on this journey with Corwin and he seems like a, a nice guy because he's had his twenty years on Earth and he's lost his memory, I think it's always a good thing to remember that basically the Greek gods were not kind, right? And the Amberites are not kind; they're none of them good guys.
0: Right, right, and Zelazny was certainly incredibly well versed in mythology. Mm. And, and uh, it's, so, you, so, it's
2: absolutely redolent, you know. Um, yeah. Culver is is yeah. uh, you know Mount Olympus, isn't it? Yeah. Basically, yeah. you know, Oberon is, is Zeus.
0: Yeah, and, and they're talking about. He, he uses this phrase "demiurge." I just want to circle that, back to that a little bit. Mm. So that's that's narcissism, <laughs> and, and this idea of an imperfect. Subcreator, right? There is this divinity yeah. that's completely above and unknowable, and then there's an imperfect subcreator that creates this flawed physical material world, which we are forced to live in, right? And so that's basically Zalazni is fully aware of that, and he's a demiurge of this, but the the, the Amberites are also the demiurges of all these shadows, right? Yes,
2: yeah. and they're also, and not only are they sort of demiurges and godlike beings, but they're also really damaged children, um, because when you think about it, you know, there's they have multitudes of worlds out there that they could go and live in. But at the end of the day, everybody always comes back to Amber because all they care about is impressing daddy. Right. (laughs) Even though they've lived for millennia, hundreds and hundreds of years, they could do anything they want. They could be gods out in shadow. It always comes back to Amber because that's all that matters. Because, you know, they're basically, they have a very dysfunctional damaged family dynamic.
1: Right. And while they're in Amber, also, it doesn't really sound like Amber is that exciting of a place to be. Coffee. And they just keep talking about, like, let's go get let's go find some cigarettes. Let's go get some coffee. Like, we yeah. need to get things from the from, from. But that was another thing. Like, I don't know if you if you see this as like a lack of um, willingness to go there or a lack of imagination. But for me, I was like, OK, Zelazny here we've got Amber which is the only real place, but they're, going, they're traveling off into this world of shadows and they're finding amazing things like coffee and cigarettes that they want to bring back to Amber. But you would also think that there are really cool and uh, cool, cool things that they fell in love with that were in other dimensions that we don't have access to that he, he could also potentially bring up in this moment. I just felt like that was kind of a missed opportunity.
2: Yeah, I think there's two things about that. I think firstly, he's doing such audacious world building in such few words. Mm -hmm. Um, and and it's one of the things that I really love about him I think it's a rare gift and it's one of the reasons I mentioned Ursula Le Guin and um, Samuel Delaney earlier on particularly Babel 21 by Samuel Delaney because I think naming no names there are a lot of writers out there who churn out tomes in terms of fantasy novels with huge amounts of world building and yet still fail to capture a world as clearly as Zelazny. Portrays Amber here. So yeah. he's working, he's in very short books, he's working in very few words, but he's introducing these massive ideas like Patton and Trump. And I just wonder if introducing weird and wonderful exotic. Um, Fruits, for example, might have just been a little bit of a step too far. We needed to root it in the familiar (laughs) in one level because I I don't think we'd ever seen anything quite like Patton or Trump or anything like that popping up in fantasy before. What he's doing is really very different and he's doing it in very few words. And I think the few words thing is also because I might be wrong about this, but I think I read somewhere that he wrote these books to pay the rent. These Mm. were not like his magnum opus, this is you know, my fantastic idea that I have to get out of my body onto a page. It was, like, oh, I need to churn something out to pay the rent. And, you know, and I just feel like if, if that's what Zelazny churns out to pay the rent, then, <laughs> Gosh, <you know>. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: To expand on two things there that you think you brought up were interesting, Um, specifically going the first thing, the rent thing, I believe I heard that the second series, which people have, you know, very mixed opinions about, mm-hmm. were specifically written when he already knew that he was quite ill with cancer. And so he wanted to basically have a sort of, source of income for his family and heirs Mm. by having this series that he was you know knocking out while he still had the the literary power to do so um and i think that your point about stuff being having some element of groundedness is well taken because if everything is fantastic jeff like we always like to say then nothing (laughs) is fantastic right yeah and so something as mundane as coffee and cigarettes could ground them and they're probably so jaded anyway that if you if you literally presented the the fruit from the Garden of Eden, that would be like, oh, it's just another apple. What do I want? What, what do I care about this? Right? So yeah, <laughs> you know. H- hand me some bourbon. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the passages that are a little difficult to deal with, I think Jeff we talked about is like when he's doing those multiple transitions through worlds. Like it becomes just a little too stream of consciousness sometimes to sort of mm-hmm. latch onto, and so to have something that's a little more grounded before the weirdness or in, in between yeah. the weirdness helps. And I, I
1: like the weirdness. I like that it goes there. I just don't know. I, like the first time we do it, sure, let's make it six pages of, you know, your, your the, this tree becomes this thing and then your outfit becomes this thing. That's really fascinating the first time. But then each time you do it, like, I feel like you can probably do it in two paragraphs moving forward. <laughs> but there are quite a few times where like, it's still like these multi-page and, and I get it. Like you really want to like make sure that we're fully like understanding just how wild this transformation is. But those were the few times, like, I felt like it was an incredibly readable book and paced very mm-hmm. well. But those were the few moments where, like, I was kind of, like, my mind would wander and I had to kind of reread a paragraph again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Becky, have you read uh, Lord Dunsany's um uh, the Queen of Elfland's Daughter? No, I haven't, but I do have it on my
2: bookshelf. So, okay. But feel free to spoiler me. I don't think spoilers really apply when something's like 40 or 50 years old.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Queen of Elfland's Daughter is what, the 1910s, 1920s? Oh, or, or, yeah. or, or older. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's like a century old at this point. Um, but I'm not going to ruin anything major from it. It's just that, you know, Lord Dunsany is like this like master of like really kind of creating very kind of a a mythological sense while you're reading it. You feel like you're very much in the fantastical. But one thing that I really dug about Zelazny in this particular story is the way he depicted his unicorn was somehow even more fantastic than Donsani's unicorn in The Queen of Elfin's Daughter. Um, You know, here we've got like this creature who... Like even the hounds won't give chase to, mm-hmm. and and you can't even explain how the thing kind of runs off. It's just like there's like a like a like a a little glint of light and it's gone. And then when they try to follow it, they only can follow it because it's letting it it's letting them follow it. I just thought he did a really good job of kind of really kind of grabbing the fantastic and putting it on display for us in a very palatable way. I think it's also it's not just what you said, but there's an extra element which is the
2: reactions of the characters. So we have these people who are gods. They are powerful, and they are at each other's throats. And they are not, as we as I've said before, they are not good people. And every time the unicorn turns up, everything just stops. You know, there's um, it turns up um, when he's with Gerard, when Corwin's alone with Gerard, and then they talk about how it turned up to Oberon. And it's almost like this: these are people who are like gods, and yet when the unicorn arrives, it's like they treat it like it's a god.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think
2: he does right. a very clever thing with the
0: the way other people react to it. Right. That this is one of the few things that's able to break through their sense of blaseness and that they're mm. in the presence of something that's higher or ineffable. That you know, yeah. <laughs> ineffable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So in the appendix, n Gary Gygax specifically says you should read roger's Zelazny and specifically you should read Jack of Shadows and the Amber Chronicles. In your opinion, why is the Amber Chronicle something that Gary Gygax would specifically tell Dungeons and Dragons players to read for inspiration?
2: I think partly it's world building. I think partly it's world building. And one of the reasons the world building is so good is, as I, as I mentioned earlier, he is introducing these concepts, high magical concepts like Trump and Patton. And yet in the book, he describes them in a way which is instantly understandable. I mean that the idea that you can walk a magical pattern and it somehow does something to your blood, and that means that you can shift into other realities which are reflections of you. That's some pretty high-concept thinking there. But when he describes Corwin walking the pattern and what it's like, and when he describes riding through shadow, and even just the single word hellride he has such a gift for explaining concepts to people. And I think as GMs, that's a really important thing, being able to take these complicated ideas, magic, or whatever plots you have going on, and to be able to communicate them in a way which is um, punchy, evocative, and instantly understandable by everybody who's listening to you. So I think, I think that that for me. He's created a completely unique fantasy world here, which doesn't look like a traditional Dungeons & Dragons world. It's not in any way Tolkien or anything like that, and yet it feels completely coherent and understandable from the get-go. It, I think it feels
0: like it stands as a mythology on its own. Right, right. And, and sort of the act of creation, again, I guess, so taking it to sort of like a, again, a slightly meta level of, you know, the Amberites as, you know, GMs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Mm. And Gygax again as a demiurge, you know, creating, you know, the DM is demiurge. <laughs> uh, flawed, very flawed creators. But um
1: And Becky, I forget I forget which show I was listening to, but I was listening to some podcast that was interviewing you and I'm forgetting which one it was now. And I remember originally I wanted I I wanted to listen to it because I thought you would be a great guest to have on a Lovecraft well, episode because of Lovecraft Esque. But then well, I forget which show I was listening to, but you were on it and you were talking about your love of Amber Diceless. That I was like, oh my God, she has played Amber Diceless. And not only has she played it, but she like loves it. We need to get her on to be on one of our Amber episodes. So as somebody who has a history with Amber Diceless, can, can you tell us how you think Amber Diceless succeeds or fails in um, bringing this kind of story to life? Sure. Oh, well,
2: I think uh, I think there's a number of different things that it does well, and a number of different things it does badly. And I did play in an Amber Diceless campaign. I think for about four years wow. when I was yeah. a when I was a young thing, and we all had time for extended campaigns. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I played in an Amber Diceless campaign for about four years, and it was a an incredibly well done campaign. And it was actually GM'd by Peter Newman, who um, writes some fantasy novels now. He's gone on to be a quite a successful fantasy author, won the David Gellin Award. So, and he did just, just a stunning job. Um, and I think so there's a few things. So the first thing about Amber Diceless is that it has no dice. You have a set of stats. Um, there are dif- The way that you determine them in the book is by an auction. So you bid to get your stats. Oh, that's cool. um, I, I think that that doesn't necessarily set us up for the best story. Um, but I, that is is very in keeping with the the way that the Ambrites obviously run themselves as a family. Um, <laughs> but so when you have an interaction with somebody, you don't roll any dice. So you are very much giving a lot of power over to the uh, GM. So it is absolutely not a game that you can play with a GM who is there to punish the players. Or compete with the players, it has to be a GM who understands that what we are collectively trying to do is tell a really good story and has a really good sense of what makes a good story, how you pace it to reward players and give them challenges in interesting ways because they have a lot more power even than a GM in a D&D campaign. Mm-hmm. And certainly far more than a lot of kind of the collaborative indie games um, that exist now. Um although interestingly, right at the back of Amber Dices, it actually suggests rotating the GM chair. I think I think it's one of the earliest mentions. I don't think it's earlier than Rocky and Bullwinkle, which is the lodestone everybody talks about. But I think <laughs> it's certainly one of, one of the very early uh, games that suggests you take it in terms to GM the game, which is obviously quite, uh, you know, radical. very ahead of its time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely.
1: Um,
2: I think the reason that it works so well as a game is because it's so rooted in the setting. And it can be rooted in the setting because... Um, Zelazny is really clear about how he describes the different powers that exist so Mm -hmm. it's quite easy to turn those into a set of mechanics because he's been quite clear about describing what they do and how they do it in the different levels Um, I think one of the interesting things is that all the Elder Ambrites are statted and are there as NPCs to draw on. And that's also really interesting because one of the genius things that Zelazny did in his book, which they then pushed through into the game, is that each of the Elder Rambroites has a fantastic political agenda. They are unique. They have their own signifiers and liveries and people who come with them. And you know if you have Benedict turning up that he's going to push the campaign in one way. And you know if you have Cain turning up, Cain's going to push the campaign in a different direction. So you can use the personalities of the elder Amberites to um, push the story into interesting places. But I think that to GM um, Amber Diceless well... Um, And and this isn't just about Amber Diceless. I think this would go for a game like Nobilis or something like that. Any game where you're dealing with PCs who have godlike powers, there is a tendency to enter into the the, um, Russell T. Davis arms race as I like mm. to think of it. Love Russell T. Davis and his what, the work he did on Doctor Who. But the problem was is that if you just have a world-destroying threat at the end of season one, then by season two you have to have a sort of a galaxy-destroying threat. And by season three you have to have a reality-destroying threat. And mm-hmm. you, then everybody scales their powers to match. And actually, that's not the interesting story that you tell with Amber Diceless. Right. Yeah. The interesting story you tell with Amber Diceless is... Why is it that people with godlike powers just can't leave each other alone?
1: Right. This is a family story. Right. It's August Osage County with superpowers.
0: <laughs> yes,
2: absolutely. <laughs> right. this, this game is this game is dynasty.
0: Right. I mean, and you know, it's completely apropos of this book, right? Because two thirds of this book is the nine of them sitting in this the salon exactly. at Casa Lambert. <laughs> right. um, and- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> The variations, I think, nobilis and what Lords of Olympus, the sort of derivations of uh, Castle of Amber. Have you played those as well? Or no, I haven't played. I haven't played
2: Lords of Gossamer and Shadow either. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And one of the things that I think is interesting about reading these novels and then looking at what I have heard of Amber Diceless is one of the things I know is. And correct me if I'm wrong. Is one of the things you do is you just kind of compare stats, and whoever stat is higher is going to be the winner of that. And it's interesting when you're reading these stories and you hear somebody say like, oh, He's. I, I, I'm not going to uh, sword fight with him because I know that he's a better swordsman than I, I am, although I used to be a better swordsman than he is, but now he's a better swordsman than me, so I'm just not even going to go there. <laughs> There's a lot of like talking about each other's skill levels in very concrete, matter-of-fact ways in these stories, and, that, and that's my impression of how it also works in Amber Diceless. Is that correct?
2: I think it works in Amber Diceless in two ways. I think that one of the nice things is that you're kind of constantly measuring yourself up against the others to see... Whether you think you can beat them or not, because you're not mm-hmm. all, you don't always know what somebody else's stats are. So there might be that kind of jockeying where you're kind of testing each other out, trying to gain information. That uncertainty of can I beat them or not? Um, but I think the other thing that Amber Diceless does really well, and it is in the mechanics of the system, is um, is cheat. <laughs> you know, Cor- Corwin beats Benedict by cheating.
0: Right. Okay. And you would so, never otherwise be able to do it. Right. He would
2: never otherwise be able to do it. And that's very much reflected in the system in that if you can stack the deck enough in your favor, then you can win despite the stats. And I like cool. that. I like that because yeah. it really encourages um, all of the skullduggery and, uh, and, and that kind of heist element again of, haha, you didn't know, but... <laughs>
1: Now, is Amber Diceless a pretty PvP kind of game, or are you all kind of working together for a cause? I think it's very PvP. Um, yeah. I think the classic way that people run one-shots of it is um, called a,
2: just a throne war, where you would run a one-shot and you would see who is sitting on the throne left at the end of it. Um, I think it's more – I don't think it's a party game at all. I think that when we when we played it back in the day, we played it mostly one-on-one with a few big scenes or a few oh. – what one-on-two scenes um, Oh, cool! and that it works spectacularly well for that it's a little bit like vampire in that regard In that vampire is kind of sort of pegged as a party game but it's way better if it's a one-on-one game
1: hmm. and that sounds um, like such an intimate rpg experience
2: well the funny thing is is that a lot of my early rpg experiences after the age of 17 were a lot of one-on-one gaming um or you know, It might be that everybody's sitting around in the room and the spotlight is being shown on one person for sort of half an hour and then it moves around, but a lot of individual scenes. And I think that teaches you very good manners. Um, it teaches you to sit back and enjoy other people's
0: stories. Mm-hmm. Do you think that style of play, I mean, obviously back then, you know, there was a social contract, but people didn't have like the concept of like safety tools and, and the like <laughs> back then. Is Amber or this kind of game something that requires that if you were playing now that requires the use of safety tools or at least is at least would really much benefit from the use of safety tools or is this you know i mean i guess it really depends on who you're playing with and what you know about them but
2: Um, I honestly, I don't think there is a game out there that doesn't benefit from safety tools. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: because you never know what weirdnesses are gonna come up or what twists and turns. And I think that there's a huge variety of safety tools out there. There's safety tools for stopping obscene before it goes too far, but there's also safety tools for moderating what content's going to be in a game before you get there. Sure. And I think that the more a player group can do to be on the same page before you start a game. Um, uh, one, one very important thing is, of course, p- player versus player can cover quite a multitude of different things, and it can be an intensely frustrating experience, or it can be a very exciting experience. Um, and I think that this, you know, we we don't even talk properly about what what the spectrum of PvP can look like. So calibrating your game, I think, um, is it Chris Chin wrote the same page tool.
1: I don't um, know. Yeah.
2: So something called the same page tool, I think it's by a, a guy called Christian. And it's just, a, it's like a questionnaire, a group questionnaire, which just calibrates what everyone's expecting to get out of the game. So oh, cool. sure. you all know what you're going in for, which I just think is such a, 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 a shouldn't be so revolutionary. um, But in fact, is is just, it's such an obviously brilliant idea.
0: Right, right. That's very cool. I'm going to have to look that up. Right. There's that. There's Shana Jermaine's which is much longer. I think that's like an eight or 10 page. Sort of. um blind. Yeah, I don't think
2: it's as long as that. No.
0: Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it definitely because it's you know very personal. It's potentially high stakes to play. You know, Amber. I mean, I guess every game is, but you know, but Amber could particularly particularly be. I, th- you know.
2: I think it can be, and I think I mean the books have got torture in them, you right. know, and certainly in my gaming group these days we tend to, you know, steer clear of that sort of thing. You know, that's absolutely something we can be calibrating anyway.
1: So. Now, as you are working your way through Sign of the Unicorn again, was there anything in this story that you're like, "Ooh, I like this. I want to steal this. I want to use this in a future <laughs> game of, in some way."
2: Oh well, so much, so much. I think that I think the character of Ganilon is fantastic. I think that anybody who is playing a big, powerful hero needs to have a Watson character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) one way as a gm that you can make a godlike player feel godlike is by giving them somebody like ganelon somebody like watson who asks them questions and they can look clever too and i think the other thing that you can take from this and that i try and put in all my games and it's certainly an element of it in bite marks is that idea that you have intense family relationships or intense personal relationships with people whether they're good guys or bad guys um because it makes the game much richer i think right. it is much more mm-hmm. interesting to play a game where you have an interesting relationship with people where you're relying on people who might be your former enemies right. um mm-hmm. you
0: know that sort of thing do you do that from the start or do you have work that into like you know the traditional D and D is you're kind of almost like tabula rasa right you're like four, yeah yeah you know eight people will meet in a tavern. And, you know, I know that now the fifth edition is a little bit more like you do have backgrounds and stuff like that, that you can sort of incorporate um, all those, you know, sort of semi-optional. But traditional d is like you show up, you somehow are adventuring together, you don't even really have to think about why you're adventuring together because we've just all played, agreed to play d and um, I would always build it in from the start. Mm-hmm. I think that
2: having a game which has intense personal interactions in it uh, and has interesting friendships and interesting relationships makes a game so interesting. Why leave it to chance
0: right, you know right. you don't
2: you don't need to leave it to chance. you can build it in from the beginning and i think I think that that just it makes it a more interesting story, you know yeah. like one of my favorite um, twists in all fiction, including this one, but you know, this is a twist that it's a trope that turns up all the time in in um, stories is when rivals end up having to work together or mm-hmm. former enemies having to end up trusting each other and working together. And it's so interesting watching the dynamic between these two characters shift and change. And that's the sort of thing where if you set it up nicely beforehand, you know, I would absolutely set up a DD game where they have a mission which tightly binds the party together and everybody's in it but two of them used to be at
0: each other's throats i mean right. that's
2: just so interesting isn't it right.
0: now i heard an interesting idea it doesn't specifically have to relate with that but i was wondering if we might be able to pull it off which is that um do you know the guys who do delta's D hotspot um it's one of the vlogs about and they're uh, the wandering dms uh, youtube channel uh they would do this basically traditional od and d battles you know like two hour things but he would have one of the other guys play the boss monster because, you know, a party of seven people is always going to be able to think a DM, right? Yeah. But he would if, we, if you have one person who's dedicated just to busting everyone's chops by playing the boss monster, and the DM <laughs> can then adjudicate the rest. I'm wondering if we could take that same dynamic into this story of rivals become allies, where you could literally, say, have your sort of major NPC be played by one of your regular players for I at least that brilliant. scene, or at least for that, you know, that session. I think that's brilliant.
2: If, if I was doing that in an Amber game, I would absolutely have um, other PCs play your Amberite parents. Like one of the classic ways of setting up an Amber game is that you play the next generation down. So you might play Corwin's child. Um, and I would absolutely have people playing each other's, uh, you know, asshole Amberite parents. <laughs> and that would be so much fun. And it's one of, the, one of the things I think that Zelazny teaches us is that NPCs, can make a story really rich. They aren't, you know, the way the doctor talks about I'm just a throwaway character. But, you know, a a throwing away character is a real waste. Having an NPC who isn't an integral, emotionally connected part of the story is a
0: waste. Don't waste your resources. That is one of the... um, I wouldn't say it's a problem uh, structurally of Dungeons & Dragons, but just in reality of how it turns out. A lot of times, your major NPC is just there for that one battle. And, you know, they don't get to escape come back or you know turn the tables on people whatever it is those things and so you have this amazing npc who's written as the the final battle but think about all the other things they could do for your campaign if they were to recur and you know form alliances you know betray them and that that way back and forth so um so i think you could port that to any game right i mean certain games already have that built in structured but even a game that's less formally structured like that um i think that's intriguing
2: it makes the world feel more real as well yeah. if you have
1: NPCs who have proper personalities who turn up again and again. Mm-hmm. And speaking of being less formally structured, you know, if you're playing a game like Amber, where your characters can basically literally go anywhere they want and do almost literally anything they want. It's, that's the kind of game that would be hard to prepare for if you're the kind of game master who feels like you have to have everything prepared for. Obviously, in a game like that, you really can't. Uh, so I don't know, do you have any any kind of um, experience being on the, the judges' side and kind of letting go? And
2: Yeah, I GMed an Amber campaign for about a year, and I think that okay. I've learned a couple of things it is i think if you are used somebody who's used to being um using a lot of pre prepared adventures or writing your own you know step by step dungeon situations then it can be quite frightening to just say okay i'm just going to roll with it um and actually it's sort of like a muscle it's one of those things where it's absolutely terrifying. I certainly remember the first few times I did it, because I've done, also done a lot of GMing and um, Pad by the Apocalypse games, which you are not really supposed to prep for. Um, and it's quite frightening to kind of sit in front of 4 eight strangers and think to yourself, okay, well, I've got four hours to film now, and I have half a page of things written down. Okay. Um, But the first thing is the more you do it, the easier you find it. And there are some fantastic books out there written for role players and written for GMs on how to get better at doing that sort of improv. I think the best one is probably Play Unsafe by Graham Wormsley. It's brilliant, but I know there are others, but that's just my favorite, um, which kind of give you some basic tools. And I think the first one is just and get out of the habit of saying no to the players and start saying Mm. yes because Mm. that will take you into weird and wonderful places um i think the second rule that i would have is um the gm is not responsible for everybody's fun at the table
0: that's true i think you are
2: not bearing it all yourself actually everybody is responsible for coming up with ideas and there is nothing wrong with saying to a player okay so you shift into the shadow can you describe for me what it looks like
0: you know, you right. chose to move here, so tell me tell me what it looks like. And then an interesting variation of that, and you just made me think about that, is if you want to have a scene where there are going to be stakes, and you are actually going to crush them and it's going to be cool, but what price are you going to pay, pay for that? Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. <laughs> right. Now, absolutely. would you also do the reverse yeah. of that where it's like, okay, well you're 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 in this situation and you are about to get crushed. Tell me exactly how it was that you were. Would you go in that direction too, or no? Yes. Yeah. So, so you
2: you you will end up at their mercy. Describe how badly it goes down, and then I'll tell you how it I'll tell you how <laughs> It'll It will probably be there. worse than
0: anything that you came up with. So. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, exactly, exactly. And
2: it gives people a sense of, I think it's particularly nice in the Amber game when you are people who have these ability to move through shadow and affect reality like gods. To gives that players that little sense of control and goddom within the game itself. And I think the kind of the last thing that I would do is to say for me, The most successful session of any game as a GM is if I have to talk almost not at all. Mm -hmm. And the reason I have to talk almost not at all is I have three players in the room who have such a complicated emotional history and emotional relationships. And we've had so many interesting things happen up to this point that they just want to spend three hours you know, working out where they stand with each other. And they Mm -hmm. are not interested in the things that I am creating. And that happens a lot in Zelazny's writing.
0: Sure, for sure. And and in particular, this book, this is definitely Mm. a perfect example of that um you can just sort of sit there and nod like a you know the yeah. uh, facilitator of a group therapy session <laughs> like <"Ooh>, that Interesting. <laughs> why do you say that
2: <laughs> you know? yeah you know. yeah you, and it's and it's and you can play like a, a therapist type role <laughs> and prod people and, and you know how did that make you feel you know
1: <laughs> and cool. i imagine one of the um one of the things that would be important to do as an amber game master and please correct me if, if you disagree is to n- not try to overly nerf the fact that you can travel through shadow, that you can summon each other with with the trump cards. Like occasionally in the Zelazny story, something happens that prevents that from working in that particular situation. So Zelazny does occasionally nerf this stuff. But I imagine if you are a nervous GM, you're going to want to try to nerf that stuff often. And that's yeah. probably an impulse that's best to try to uh, not follow. I think that that's right. And
2: I think that another important thing to do is to very... You don't have to closely confine shadow to closely confine the story. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. as we talked, the beginning of the book, most of this first chunk of the book is like a locked room mystery. These are people with godlike powers and they use them in the beginning of the book. They use those godlike powers, but none of them want to leave the room they're in.
0: Right. Something's because something that's something where all the interesting happen. thing is. Exactly. Yeah,
2: exactly. Something might happen. You know, so one thing you can do in Amber is just say, yeah, you have these godlike powers, but actually all you care about is winning this argument in this room right now. <laughs> so that's the first thing. I think that the second rule of running Amber is get rid of the el- elders mm-hmm. because yeah. otherwise the players will just run to Benedict to solve all their problems and it just gets boring. So, yeah. you know, there's such a fantastic way of kickstarting any Amber story by saying something happened to the elders. They're all gone. The, right. You know, what are you going to do now?
0: Right, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, to your point, Jeff, about the nervousness, you kind of have... Amber actually gives you a built-in escape hatch. You can never let everything go because everything is shadows and ripples, right? <laughs> so nothing necessarily can eff- affect the just completely destroy the multiverse right because maybe you're just you think you're an amber and you're actually in yeah. you know the near shadow from amber <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah and I'd, I'd also like to kind of counsel people to be generous and kind with themselves like one of my big bugbears and i've mentioned this on other podcasts is that actual play is a wonderful thing for showcasing the hobby but things like critical role give people an unrealistic view of Mm -hmm. what you can and should expect from a GM. And it puts unrealistic pressures on people about what they can and should expect of themselves when they GM'd. When I started GMing when I was 17, 18, I I did not have a Matt Mercer to compare myself to. You know, (laughs) everybody was very kind and generous with my mistakes because you will make a lot and you won't get better until you don't. But I think we go into it now thinking we've all got to be Matt Mercer from the get-go, and it takes Years.
1: With yeah. Dwarven Forge minis. <laughs> with
2: Dwarven Forge minis straight away. And the reality is, is that, you know, those of us who have been doing this well before Critical Role turned up, kind of, we know that, it, that it's going to be messy. You're going to have times where your storyline falls flat or you go dry.
0: Right, And yeah. you know
2: what? If you go dry, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, everybody. I've just lost my thread for the rest of the session. Shall we just call it a day, kick back, right. and then I'll prep something for next time.
0: Right. And like your phrase before, it's a muscle. It's something that needs yeah. to be developed over time. And we don't we haven't seen Matt Mercer in all those people's process because he's been an actor for however long it's been and yeah. he has been a master for yeah. however long it's been. And um, AP is totally. edited. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. You know, they yeah.
2: edit out all the stumbling that you'll be doing when you do it.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this is a great place to start wrapping this up uh becky do you have any last thoughts about the sign of the unicorn that you really wanted to get out there
2: i think i've covered them all i think i would say zelazny shows you how to inject the most amazing interpersonal drama into role-playing games and that you should take take his example and run with it
1: I love it. Now, are you working on any projects right now that you'd like people to know about?
2: Oh, well, I have a Patreon. The Black Armada has a Patreon, although it's currently on hiatus because um, during the COVID crisis, we have been doing a lot of homeschooling and that has not left a lot of time for oh. um, creating new things. But things are starting to ease up a little bit and we're very hopeful we can kick off again. Um, the, our major project that we're Josh and I, who I co-founded Black Armada with, we have been we we have had an urban mythic game in development for about seven years now, and we said to each other at the beginning of the year 2020, this will be the year that we write that game, and it was not. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was not the year that we really got stuck into it so far. But I think once things start to ease up, we want to do that. And uh, the urban mythic game that we've got in mind, it's sort of like Netherwear. We won't be using the um, the property of Netherwear. Um, by Neil Gaiman and similar books of its ilk. We call am I allowed to swear? I think I already have yes. done actually yes. haven't I? Okay, so we call <laughs> we call the this the genre of the what the fuck game. And this is the <laughs> this is the genre where you're an ordinary person bodding about in your ordinary life and suddenly it's like you've gone through the rabbit hole. And you've realized that there is another world just slap overlaid on everything else, like yeah. in Netherware, like Alice in Wonderland. I think American Co- Gods American Gods Kraken by China Mievel is a good example. I think the
0: Magicians.
2: Yeah, the magicians. I think Erin Morgenstern's um What's the thing about the circus that she wrote?
0: Uh, Night Circus? Or something the like Night that? Circus.
2: That's yeah. another one, the Night Circus. So something like that. And the reason it's called Urban Mythic is that we don't want it to be full of vampires or werewolves or fairies. But what, say, so Rivers of London or Neverwhere do is that they take kind of spirits of the place and turn them into semi-mythical beings. Um, Simon mm. R. Green's something from the Nightside novels, do this as well. So the idea that the River Thames is sort of like an entity with its own magical powers.
0: Right, right. This could be Um, like Tim Powers, but might be a good source for this type too. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think it might be actually. Um, And what we wanted to do is to kind of enable people, write a system, show people some examples, and then give people the tools to kind of take those and go off and create a mythology with a whole bunch
1: of beings um,
2: set in their own locality
1: perfect and if folks want to find out more about you and or black armada where can they do that so they can follow
2: me on twitter at becky annison um we have blackarmada.com is our website uh and then patreon slash black armada as well that's on hiatus so probably the best place is at becky annison on twitter because if i as and when i start doing anything new
0: i will i will mention it on there (laughs)
1: There you go. Perfect. And hoy, where can folks find out
0: more about us? All right. So um if you want to give us some feedback, you can always email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh you can rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And we're also on Facebook and MeWe and the other platforms of choice. And uh on Twitter, we're at appendix underscore N. And Jeff, how about our Patreon?
1: Yes. So as a patron, you are able to join us before we record our episodes with our patron book clubs. And we had two of our patrons join us this afternoon. Uh, So thanks to uh, Lucio uh, Nothlich-Pimentel and Adam Stiers for joining us. Uh, We would also like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons, Adrian Romero, Damian Mason Coffey, Daniel Bishop, Peter Martino, Dimo Saklas, uh, Noah Green and Christopher Murray thank you so much for your support yes, indeed. you can head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club to show us your support there Becky thank you so much for being on the show thank, thank you. you so much
2: for having me I've had a great time
1: alright and uh, if you want to check out our next two episodes episode 76 will be on Michael Moorcock's The Vanishing Tower and episode 77 will be on Elspreg De Camp's The Clocks of Erraz see
0: you in the stacks
1: Read on. The library is closed.